Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me on this episode of Movie Go Round for New to Two, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm excellent, thank you. I'm reaccustoming my eyes to the drab surroundings of my ordinary apartment uh, after enjoying this film twice in the last couple of days. So, But I'm looking forward to talking about it and seeing what you guys think. Absolutely. Uh, this was your pick. But before we get to that, David Luzader, how are you? I'm doing well. Happy to be here as always. Excited to talk about some movies. Absolutely. Uh, so, new to two, if you are not familiar with the show, it is the opportunity for one of us to bring a movie that neither of the other two have ever seen before. Nicole, it was your time this time to bring a new to two movie. So, you picked a film. Before we introduce that film, however, I do want to announce next episode's film. That way, you can follow along if you would like to. Next week is Flix Prime Roulette, which uh, previously known as... <laughs> Uh, as Netflix Roulette, which is because we took Netflix Roulette, we spin a wheel, Netflix spits out a movie to us, we added in Amazon Prime because we know that most folks have Amazon Prime as well, or maybe you have Amazon Prime and not even Netflix. So hopefully this is including you if you happen to be in that crowd. But you can pretty easily follow along if you have one of those two streaming services. We spin both and it gives us one or the other. This time, we did spin our wheel and we ended up with an Amazon Prime movie. So at least as of the time of recording here in July, uh, it is available on Amazon Prime for free. We are watching the most recent and I believe final entry in the Rambo franchise, Rambo Last Blood. So you can check it out on Amazon Prime now. And that's what we'll be watching. God, I hope it's the last one. Next week. (laughs) It's yeah. I can't even. Well, it'll be very interesting to talk about. And none of us have seen a Rambo movie. <laughs> so if you really no, want to... You know, the next one will be like Rambo 8, you know, Rambo's Rest Home, kind of. <laughs> Rambo's Rest Home. <laughs> Surprisingly, the most violent of the of the eight. Uh, so... <laughs> Check out Rambo Last Blood if, if you feel so inclined. Uh, but in any case, we watched The Fall. It's a film that came out in 2006, a pick from Nicole. Again, neither myself nor David had seen it. In a Los Angeles hospital in 1915, a little immigrant girl who broke her arm falling from a tree befriends a movie stuntman whose legs were paralyzed after a fall during a stunt. The stuntman begins telling the girl an elaborate story that spans continents as its heroes meet, plan, and journey together to defeat an evil ruler. Between chapters, the stuntman uses the little girl to scout the hospital for him to advance a plan of his own. The ending of both stories rides on the metal of their bond. Nicole, I'd never heard of this before. It's a little hard to get a hold of, fair warning listeners. What made you bring us uh, The Fall? Um, because I feel like this movie is underseen, underappreciated. Uh, it was made outside the studio system. It was actually completed in 2006, but wasn't released uh, in most places till 2008. I suspect there are rights issues involved, which may be why it's not available streaming anywhere. Um, I happen to own the Blu-ray, and I 
it's absolutely one of the most beautiful films I've ever seen. It's uh, has one of the most, and I'm not sentimental when it comes to kids in movies at all, but it's got one of the most endearing child performances that I've ever seen on film. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a story about storytelling and I'm kind of a sucker for those. So also Lee Pace is pretty. So. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Uh, my favorite an- a- anecdote from the IMDb trivia page about this movie is that Peter Jackson posted on Facebook about how he uh, casted Lee Pace for the Hobbit films because of this movie. <laughs> so oh, wow. he thought Lee Pace was pretty too, pretty enough for an elf. So there you go. This was shot in over four years in 20 countries and there are no built sets minimal special effects to my understanding very few um and what you see is what you get i was astounded to look at all the photos from production and just see like these are places i can go to they're real and that's amazing because this film Mm -hmm. is it's so beautifully shot and maybe it's just the color and it is the colors but it feels like a sense of heightened reality. Nothing feels real. Nothing feels authentic. It feels, it feels very fantasy, but it is, it's all real. Even even the colors, even the colors, he painted homes in order to make them look super blue. Yeah. Yeah. The, (laughs) the location uh, for the final scene, I can't remember um, where it was, but yeah, he gave all the residents or not all of them, but like a number of residents like blue paint so they could repaint their homes. So it would be really vibrant and really pop. And it, it, No matter what I have to say about this movie's story, like I will just say straight out, visually, it is stunning. Like there are so many times where I was like, this frame could be like a painting. This could be like the background on my computer. Almost every single frame and scene is just like beautifully, wonderfully shot. Even times where, you know, it's it's a kid in a hospital bed. Like, well, okay, we're still going to frame him through the bars of the bed to give that extra little artsy touch. (laughs) It feels Tarzan very nothing if not a visual filmmaker. Mm-hmm. No kidding. It feels very. Uh, I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it. it. It's. I noticed that Princess Bride was cited as a an influence on this movie, and I and I understand that because it feels so fantastical, which is even more impressive that they didn't have to bring in any sort of CGI or really significant special effects work in order to make the movie happen. And I, and I just, I can't get over all the countries. Nicole, you, you, you have some of them already on a list. Could you list off some of the places it was filmed just for context for the audience? I do. Uh, it's worth saying that probably at least half of the locations are in India alone. Um, but I mean, India is a very large country. It's like, you know, close to the size of the United very, States. So saying that you colorful. shot something in America is not, saying much about where you shot something you know so Mm -hmm. saying you shot something in india isn't saying much about where you shot it because there's a huge you know ecological diversity um but the uh the thing that looks like uh it was made by escher is a step well um it's called chand bowery it's in the indian state of rajasthan uh the dunes where you see alexander the great are in namibia um You've got Ubud, which is in Bali in Indonesia, which is where, you know, the mystic is taken to be revived and they do the 
you know, the chanting and the dancing to, you know, bring him back. Um, you know, there's Italy, there's Turkey, there's, um, oh my goodness, there's South Africa is where the interiors were shot. Uh, <laughs> there's France, there's Cambodia, there's part of the United States, there's the Great Wall of China. You know, there's all kinds of places uh, that this was done all over the world. In some cases, it was just like a producer with a handheld camera getting a three-second shot for the montage sure. of their travel. But yeah, they they really went to all of these places to get this photography, and it's it comes together into a really uh, stunning, you know, looking like a fantasy world, but really just being some of the most fantastical places on Earth. Yeah. The one thing I noticed as well is that it looks like Tarzan actually was self-funding the vast majority of the movie and yep. would go to places to film commercials and to just to do work that were was actually paying gigs and then would pay to have the cast sent out and, and actually do this stuff in conjunction with whatever he was doing just to get the bills paid as well as it is. And, and in that sense, it seems to me like this is one of the coolest labor of love uh, pet projects i think we've seen on the podcast well and and he was also using the crew from the stuff he was shooting like the commercials he would use the crew which uh, i love to to think that it's like all right great we wrapped up that scene for the commercial and next up we have a sword fighting scene and they're like wait what's <laughs> that for no don't worry about it it's fine let's just uh get lee pace in here please <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah and it also to my understanding, it was a little bit of a different pay structure where everyone was paid fairly equally. There was not the traditional Hollywood pay structure of Lee Pace getting all of the money. So, well, and even even he didn't do it at scale, which is you know like them making the minimum amount they can. It's just everybody got paid the same amount. Very right. cool. Which is you know yeah that's it's it's definitely cool. It's uh, I've, I saw some behind the scenes footage for this it's on the blu-ray it's they're a little weird there are these two featurettes and they're each about 15 20 minutes and there's no narration for either of them so it's all just this sort of montage of you know a few minutes here a few minutes there behind the scenes to get um a candid look at how things were made and you know there's one shot when they're out in namibia on the the dead fly with the giant orange dunes and the desert hard pan and everything and Tarsem was just, is like yelling at the crew and just telling them you know even if this is the world's giant the biggest piece of crap in the world I want us to have a good time making it and be proud of it and give it a hundred percent and just sort of kind of keeping everybody's spirits up as best he could in like withering heat in <laughs> actually most of the places they shot withering heat. Right. Um, I, I like hearing that he had that attitude about it because movies like this, and, and I think that it definitely does have some flaws from a story perspective. Um, I think there's ways this movie could have been tightened up quite a bit. Uh, and there's only minimal, minimal. What my fear for this movie going in is I was like, Oh, is this going to be like really up its own butt? Uh, <laughs> and I will say it is, it is minimally up its own, but at times it is, you know, any, any story about storytelling is going to 
have that feel a little bit about it. So to hear that he had this attitude of like, you know what, what we're making might suck, but let's have a great time doing it, I think does come through in this movie. I think that you can... And labor of love is something that one of us said earlier, and I, I think it really does resonate as a labor of love. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I, it had to be. When he took it yeah. and shopped it around to the studios, the studios were like, wow, this is great. We love this idea. Let's make it a kid's movie. And they <laughs> wanted, overwhelmingly, they were just like, you know, if you can make this PG, we'll make it. And he was like, no. No, because the you know the violent thing at the end it's it's important to the drama of the story and they're just like oh well forget it then sure (laughs) we don't want to do it you know so they were he would have constantly uh been needing to soften it everywhere um which i don't think would have served the story well at all i mean i'm sure there's a fantastic kids movie to be made of this and i think uh it's inspiration um was geared a little more towards kids this is based on a script for a bulgarian movie called yo ho ho uh in 1981 which actually you know the story being told is about pirates if you could guess um (laughs) so it's actually kind of a wink for you know uh alexandria to say i don't like pirate stories well, there, there was an another wink when i think somebody mentioned that uh princess bride was a uh an inspiration for this film. I'm just forgetting who says what on this episode. So uh, but he, uh, when she's, when he's telling the story at one point and she's like, have them kiss. And he's like, no, they're not going to kiss like that. Had a very princess bride feel to me. You know, cause the, oh, yeah, whole the, movie, cut, the cutbacks yeah. to the kid earnestly listening to the, to the storyteller. Yeah. Well, yes. yeah. But also like the flip on its head of like, uh, you know, in, in Princess Bride, he never wants them to kiss. He wants to skip over the kissing scenes. And she's yeah. like, is this the kissing no. book? Yeah. She's <laughs> like, no, no, make them kiss. I want them to kiss here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I couldn't help as a as a as a child of the early 2000s growing up uh, relaying this to Secondhand Lions. I mean, it, Secondhand Lions is a very like schmaltzy movie, but it it's it's similar. You're both giving me very weird looks right now. <laughs> it's because not a lot of people saw Secondhand Lines. It's it was like years. Haley Joel Osment's first. Big say, have movie either of you seen Secondhand Lions? When it was in no. theaters, I can't okay. tell you what it was about or anything about it. Oh, maybe you'll give me a pass on a few, on a, a new to two at some point then if you can't remember it. it this movie was like one <laughs> a childhood favorite of mine, which I recognize as an adult is not particularly great. But um, yeah, it, it has that element of of them telling these fantastical stories to their grandson or, or their their nephew rather. I think in the movie um, that are then acted out you know, in conjunction with them telling the story, sim- similar to Princess Bride, but done with incredibly vivid colors and some fantastical elements that feel a sense of heightened reality to them. I, I saw that parallel to be made. Um, th- this is an incredibly better movie. <laughs> uh, so, <laughs> for what it's worth, yeah, does I, I'm that not... movie have a swimming elephant in it? No, Second Hand Lions just, they don't even give you lions until the very end of the movie. So, oh, yeah. In any case, uh, yeah, th- that's that- false advertising. I know <laughs> this movie. Somebody actually does fall like right at the beginning of the movie, you know, right at the beginning. No line. Right. So let's, let's talk a little bit about the, 
the plot of this film. I feel like we've talked so much about how it's made and the passion that went into it and some of the production about it. But let's talk more specifically about this actual plot. Um, And I know David has some thoughts on it as well about how it could potentially be tightened. Because really what the story is, is... um, what is Lee Pace's character's name? Going over... Roy. 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 Okay, so Roy Walker. That is such a 1910 stuntman name. My goodness. So Roy <laughs> Walker gets hurt doing a stunt in one of those flicker pictures, as they call them in the movie. Um, jumping off a bridge, trying to land on a horse. And uh, he gets hurt and seemingly temporary or permanently paralyzed. We don't know until the end of the movie, but he can't move. Uh, can't feel his feet. Um, and he's in this this hospital that's in uh, Los Angeles, which is also where this young uh, Romanian, correct, girl yeah. is? Yes. And actually, um, fun fun fact, the actress, who we will gush over momentarily, uh, Katinka Untaru, was the first Romanian child actor to star in an international film. So... Mm kudos to her she's wonderful in this movie cool. but anyway he develops a little bit of a bond with her um and part of that is so she can help him kill himself uh but part of it is really nice and lovely uh, <laughs> let's talk about that relationship well and let's and let's also for somebody who maybe didn't watch the movie and is just hearing us talk about it his yeah. suicide method is to take pills so he's tricking her to get i don't want anybody thinking like he's tricking this young girl to like get him a gun or something sure of course right. yeah <laughs> I want you to draw this pattern on my wrists with this. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, It's, but it's, it's, and it has one of my favorite scenes because apparently uh, when they were filming the movie, Tarsem wanted everyone to believe that Pace was actually a paraplegic and most of the cast and Untaru included had not ever seen him standing. And he spent most of the time filming, particularly in the first half of filming in the bed. So people were actually shocked when they would see him out walking about because they, they thought he was paralyzed. And <laughs> that made, at least in the director's view, the interactions between him and Untaru so much more authentic and honest because she really was kind of like poking and prodding him like a little girl that quite doesn't understand what's wrong with this guy because most of her lines are ad-libbed and the director would go as far to rewrite entire sequences of the movie around little things she would say and do. And she'd have these conversations with Lee Pace's character kind of covertly because there's these curtains around his hospital bed and she'd sneak into them and sit on his bed and they'd film through little holes in the curtains and she wouldn't even know they were filming. And this created things like, for instance, when he tells her to go get morphine for him and he spells out morphine and she reads the E at the very end as a three. So she thinks she is supposed to get three morphine for him, which was not in the in the story. And uh, Tarsim thought that was so great that he decided to then rewrite that section of the movie. So she accidentally only goes and gets him three pills and throws out the rest of them. Uh, what a cool way to film it. It's so it gives her such personality and authenticity as a child actor. Yeah. I mean, she, you know, she had lines and she, he, Tarsem would, would generally before each scene, walk her through the blocking before they did the filming, just to be clear. It's like, I want you to go over here and you're going to talk about this and I want you to be sad about it, or I want you to be angry about it or this kind of thing. And he'd, he'd walk her through it once or twice. And then, you know, she wouldn't always remember her lines exactly. And rather than go through, you know, 57 takes with a child actor, 
he wanted to keep it as natural as humanly possible. So he'd, he'd write around it if she changed the wording at all or said something spontaneous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there there is a very real authenticity to her, um, and we've discussed why that is. Uh, all, all to the point where at times I would get a little bit frustrated with her. Like I have nieces and nephews. I love little kids, but there is just like a little bit way that like little kids are kind of inattentive or in their own little world that can sometimes yeah. be frustrating, um, which mm-hmm. speaks to, you know, her performance and the way that they handled her and the way they, they worked with her and her, her natural strengths. I think it is an aid to the movie. I don't want it to sound like I'm sitting here being like, I really hated this child actor. It's like, no, I thought, I thought she did a really great job to the point where at times where I was like a little bit like, okay, I, I need a break. Like when I'm with my nephew sometimes, I'm like, I need 10. Thank you. Well, Roy has to repeat things to her three, four, five times sometimes in the script in order to, and I'm imagining that might not even be part of the script in order to like get her back on focus and realize what's happening in the moment. But to your point, that's how little kids can be. Uh, and you know, Nicole yeah. put in her docket, is she not the most adorable child actor there has ever been? She's really cute. Um, she's very cute. Yeah. It's it's weird that I looked her up and she's like my age now, <laughs> and, and and looks 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 like an adult, kind of wild. Um, those oh, things happen, um, I guess. Nicole just Nicole just turned into dust and blew away. At you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Then, hey, she's a I year mean, younger than me, of- almost two years. Ooh, okay. So, <laughs> all right, okay, totally different good. guys. I mean, part of, part of her appeal for me is that she looked she looked a lot like my best friend. Uh, that no. I had when we were kids down to the, you know, the braids and the chubby cheeks and the dimple and, you know, just kind of her eyes crinkling up when she smiles. And she, it's uh, like I said, I don't get sentiment. Usually I really don't like child actors like at all um, there. You know, it's just there's this artificiality that comes with them a lot of the time, but she's just so natural and so damn cute and it's just like oh you know so i mean when i was surprised you know i had seen this before and we get to the end and there's a part where she gets very distressed and i found myself getting really distressed and upset and my eyes leaking a little bit because i'm just oh you're you're breaking her heart just don't do this to her and just Oh yeah, that whole yeah. scene where he's ending, uh, you guys ending the story is yeah is very difficult. It is it is built on this relationship that they have, uh, and you know him working through his junk and kind of her, uh, you know, dealing with a, a broken man that she doesn't really know how to deal with, but like, she's still trying to like, kind of help and get her own set. Like it's, it's, uh, it's a very tragic. The last like 15 minutes before the end, it's just like, it's a little bit hard to watch. Not as hard as his actual attempted suicide, but you know, still hard. Yeah. So, so let's go back over some of that ground. There is that moment toward the end where, this group of bandits that he has assembled in his in his fantasy story for her all have beef uh, with the bad guy whose name is uh, Odious. Governor and, Odious. Yes, and uh, they they finally converge upon his castle, and they're all there to get their revenge. And uh, I think I, I referred to it as you know the execute order sixty six moment in which he just starts tearing apart 
all of these characters in really visceral, surprisingly violent ways. Um, mm-hmm. For a movie that's not terribly violent up until this point, like aside from the the distress of watching him attempt to kill himself, um, there's a point at the end of this where one of the bandits gets shot not 50, 60 times in the back with arrows and then falls backward. And there's so many arrows that they just prop up his entire body. And he's yeah, telling like he's this to this poor child. Nails. Right. Yeah. And and all of them have these really horrible deaths. And and yeah, like like um Alexandria the girl is just completely distressed and he's telling and keep keep in mind that he's telling her this while she herself is now also in a hospital bed because she hurt her head climbing up to try to get him pills to kill himself. She doesn't understand that. Uh in in the little internal pharmacy thing. Like she's trying to help him. She doesn't realize what she's doing is actually hurting him. And he comes to her in this fragile state and continues to just order 66, all these characters that she loves. It's horrible. Well, I mean, yeah. that's why they they wrote in um, this gift basket that he gets where he's like, you know, offering her chocolate from it in exchange for helping him with his with his task um, <sighs> in yet another, you know, lure to to try to get her to do this for him. But there's a bottle of whiskey in there. So he's like socking back the whiskey next to the table <laughs> that she's on after her falling and, and hitting her head and really endangering herself. And I mean, his eyes are all puffy. He's clearly been crying. He knows that this is, this is his fault that she's, you know, been through this. And so he's mad at himself and he's feeling sorry, extra sorry for himself. And he's like half drunk already or yeah. well into drunk. And yeah. so they they wrote that in to try to keep you from losing all sympathy for the character with him, you know, freaking her out this way with the story. Yeah. And you definitely feel a bit of that anger uh, is misdirected in the way that he's taking it out on her. Right. Like we through this story, it's like, fine, you want the story like everyone dies. This is like this is all your fault. But like, you know, he works through it and with her help. At the end, he's like, all right, not everybody dies, just mostly everybody. <laughs> I thought he was going to walk it back. I, as, soon as, he, as soon as she started instigating herself into the story and trying to like, save these characters, I thought that he was going to somehow bring them back. But no, no, everyone stays mostly dead. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's a tragic scene. I, I also think there's an element to his character where he's written in a way that at times made him feel a little unsympathetic to me just because he is a colossal pity party. Um, but he's definitely had a, a string of bad luck because there's two, th- it, you know, there's two very separate crappy things that happen to him. The first is he's, he's in a stunt man. He gets hurt, can't walk out of a job. Um, whole nine yards there. The second thing is that his girlfriend then leaves him for the dude who replaced him in the stunt work, <laughs> which that's a bummer. That's a really big bummer. I, I, I mentioned to you guys while watching this that this is a very elaborate Spotify breakup playlist where he's just completely unraveling for this young girl. Uh, and well, I mean, she leaves him for the leading man, not for the replacement. Oh, I'm sorry, the leading guy. man. Sure, right. Of um, course. But the other, the other part that you you might have missed. I mean, I missed it on my first screening. Is it? This was his first movie. Yeah. Because uh-huh. somebody saying like, "You do this for the pictures," and he said. Just once. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. So, Poor guy. Yeah. 
he is a poor guy, but also like, come on, man. <laughs> I don't know. It's it's it's, well, it's tough I mean, though. This this was an age before, I mean, like well before disability advocacy. You know, the only advocate for the disabled before this was like Helen Keller, and that was pretty much it. You know, he's this is an era where being injured like this took away from being a man you know yeah. you were you were half a man if you couldn't walk and you know stride around and be macho and whatnot you know this was the attitudes were very uh, dismissive of people with with physical disabilities and so i mean yeah you know and he's young and he's dumb and he's yeah been, he is. you know he went to do his dream job and the first time he does it he gets badly injured and he thinks it's all over you know so yeah he he spirals into a depression very quickly and right. and he finds out at the end of the movie they like cut it out <laughs> they, they replaced a scene yeah they cut out his big jump well, I mean, would you leave it in if that happened? They do that now in Hollywood. You know, if somebody dies doing a stunt or is badly injured, a lot of times they'll they'll take it out of the movie altogether. I mean, yeah, no, I I no, but it was you know nineteen fifteen. Times were different. <laughs> men were men. The women were also men. <laughs> so the sheep were men. The horses were men. Exactly. <laughs> and, and and all these characters that that we're seeing. In, in this story that he that he's telling to Alexandria, I, I do want to also mention that there is a visual depiction between what he is describing her of these characters and uh, and what is what is what she is visualizing as the person receiving the story. Um, mm -hmm. Obviously, she is doing the classic. Everyone, all of you were there. Uh, it, it very much is that mentality of the um, Wizard of Oz kind of touch. Exactly. Of yeah, the ha the handyman on the farm were characters in the story. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, you have the old man who lost his teeth. Is the uh, which one was he? Uh, they're all there. All the the all the the, the love interest is was one of the nuns. Um, one of the one of the immigrant workers working in the orange fields with her is um, just referred to as I think I think the Indian in the movie. And, and that's and that's kind of where it's most striking because the way he's talking about it is very obviously he's talking about a, a Native American when he's mm -hmm. saying Indian, but she is picturing an actual person from India because uh, he uses a certain word uh, that is a slur for a Native American uh, woman when he is talking about like, you know, he never set his eyes on another one, you know, or he never would look at another one of these again. And, and like, while he was saying that, I'm like, I'm pretty sure that's not a, it's not a word in India. I'm very convinced. It took me a minute to, to piece together. Like that's what was going on. Yeah. I mean, because she, that was, you know, she knew a man in the orange groves picking oranges with her and her family who was from India. And he's the one who gave her the little carved elephant that's in right. her box of treasures Mm -hmm. so or the box of thing things she likes so yeah oh that's cute i like a little box of treasures for little who things. the and, and it's and so adorable that she's one. holding it in that busted arm a whole with the cast <laughs> yeah. it's always like dangling yeah. from that hand 
And and so. the director made one of those little boxes and mimicked all of her uh, little trinkets as a way to try to pitch the movie to potential investors when he was describing it in meetings. Uh, oh, that's cute. I don't know if it worked out because he, he ended up self-financing, but I think that worked out for him. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and then I, I also want to bring up the the man who whose uh, teeth keep falling out, who who is very kind to her. I think he gives her an orange at one point. Um, and he's just this older guy, his teeth keep falling out. And there is this scene where she only brings him uh, three morphine. And then he convinces her to go get him more morphine, which she does. And he takes a lot of morphine or so he believes uh, it ends up being a placebo drug that they were giving another one of the patients. So he does not die the way he thought he would. He has a gigantic freak out. He's so angry and upset at the world. Um, and then we see this next scene. I'm sorry. We see a scene in between <laughs> where it, a body bag is being being brought out of the hospital and we're led to believe he was killed before we see him have a freak out. He wasn't killed, though. Which, it turns out the old yeah. man died. Which it got me because I was like, okay, there's like a half hour left in this movie. Like his character's not dead. And they showed the body there. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, all right. I don't know what's... Uh, <laughs> well, damn. What's yeah. <laughs> I guess I was wrong. Oh, that was such an emotional roller coaster for me. And I, and I sent you guys a message and I was like, oh my God, he just died. I can't believe the pill scene. And then Nicole's just like, oh yeah, the part where he wakes up. And I'm like, God damn it, Nicole. <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. One minute I, later, he woke up. Yeah, it's like a minute later. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's not that you're not left in suspense long. Uh, but yeah, he, he, we do have the scene where the old man ends up being the one who died. And she goes and she takes his teeth and she puts them inside of an orange and buries the orange so they can sprout an orange tree with teeth in the oranges. It's it creepy and cute. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, now, the worst, there's two scenarios that are going to come about her doing that. Uh, either it's going to be a tree with teeth or yeah. uh, all the oranges will have teeth inside of them. Yeah. Which is what she wanted, yeah. which is horrifying and, I mean, and adorable. Yeah. Imagine just peeling an orange and you come across a tooth. And it just <laughs> the, the fruit that bites back. <laughs> yeah. So one uh. of the characters is Luigi, who is our, uh, our Italian arms expert, I suppose, explosive expert in particular. Um, he's one of the characters. Who is he in the, in the uh, hospital? S- He's the He's man. The that act- oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, it's it's the guy that's the missing a leg that comes to visit Roy. Oh, of course. Okay, the pirate, as as she believes. Uh, yes, yeah, so, your friend, the pirate. <laughs> <laughs> so he only he- has the one leg. Right. Uh, he's the weakest one and could be cut with no loss to the film from David. Uh, he doesn't, I mean, he doesn't do a lot. I mean, his his explosives provide some awkward comic relief when they do and don't work, but you're, you're probably right. <laughs> I mean, I suppose, but I mean, I like him. He's like one of those gruff but affable kind of characters that provides a little color to the film and he gets the the great line of i told you not to put the map in the box with the bugs <laughs> yes that's, yeah it, but i i for, like it sticks out to me when he's first telling the story and he's introducing the character and he, he does the first two stories and it's like there was the you know the freed slave who swore revenge against the guy and, and brother's uh, death yeah yeah and alexandria is like i like him and then he's like there's the <laughs> the indian who like the woman he loved was driven to suicide so he swore revenge it's like ah i like him and then here's luigi he made a, <laughs> a bomb and the guy didn't like it so he told people not to talk to him and luigi swore revenge and she's not like <laughs> i like him just to me like a very 
it was like of all like the origin stories like even the the charles darwin one you know also similarly like okay that's not as like dramatic but it worked with the way the character was written <laughs> it's I, I just felt you know in in almost two hours i was like well we could have lost luigi and i don't i don't think much of the movie would have been changed you lose darwin you lose a lot yeah, let's, well, and let's... then you lose the yellow from all the all the fantasy scenes because they've each got like a signature yeah. color that they're wearing. Make you know, the that, monkey that provides the pops in the, some scenes. The monkey can wear a tiny yellow cape. <laughs> Perfect. The monkey is adorable. <laughs> monkey is adorable. How have we not talked about the Charles Darwin thing? So one of the characters in, in this this band of bandits is a a very interestingly depicted Charles Darwin, always wearing incredibly large, like flamboyantly colorful, like feather ponchos. Like what are they? No, it's, um, it, it's, it's meant to look like the fur of colobus monkeys, which was a, really? a trend briefly um, in the early 20th century among like the very, very rich uh, for looking for exotic animal things to wear. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's colobus monkeys have like these black and white pelts. So obviously parts of it are dyed to be red, um, and look almost like giant feathers, but I, that's, that's what it is. And I think it symbolizes along with Wallace, the monkey, um, his connection to, you know, the establishing the, the idea that men are descended from apes and that, you know, the various laws of natural selection, and it goes a little bit deeper with the monkey as well, because the monkey's name is, is, is Wallace. Uh, two of the characters are like ripped out of what would have been probably like big stories of the day, um, which are Darwin and uh, Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace. And, you know, the controversy over who really should get credit for origin of the species. He has that really great line uh, when, when Darwin is like putting the little monkey to rest. And he was like, they'll, they'll all know it was your ideas and I was the fool or, you know, however he said it. And then the, the character of Oda Benga was a real person. Um, whose his imprisonment, uh, in the Louisiana purchase exposition was also a prominent news story at the time. The monkey died. Yeah. the monkey. Died. <laughs> <laughs> it made me so sad guys. I know it's not the proper response to, uh, <laughs> To either yeah, of those. Never mind the pygmy guy that was imprisoned and displayed as part of like a circus prop, but you know, hey, he's a monkey. He got but a revenge. Yes, that is also sad. The monkey nut. Oh my God. Yeah. The monkey. Uh, the monkey caught the butterfly. Yeah, the monkey was going after the I butterfly. Know. Oh my God. So, <laughs> so, no monkey. I told Brad, I was like, no monkeys were killed in the making of this movie, but they did actually sedate the monkey at the end. So it would just lie there. <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> dude, that monkey was probably like, this is the best day. <laughs> <laughs> Let's all keep in touch after this is over. <laughs> I love you all. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so uh, we, I wanted to also talk about I, I actually let's back up. Nicole, you want to talk about the costume design. I feel like that's a good segue into that oh, because my goodness. Darwin does have a yeah. wild costume design as does everyone else. It is really incredibly done in this movie. And like you said, it's all very colorful and each character has yep. colors very much associated with them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's uh, the costume designer was Aiko Ishioka, um, who 
probably most famously outside of this movie did the costumes for Bram Stoker's Dracula. Um, including like the weird red armor that Gary Oldman wears that you'll see later in the cell. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) uh, She did the costumes for the cell. She did the costumes for immortals, which was another movie that Tarsem did. Um, And she's a famous Japanese designer. And I mean, she was like the first important uh, recognized female designer in Japan. She came out of the sixties and, you know, she's, was a designer for Shiseido, which is a cosmetics company uh, when she started, but she worked into doing like Olympic team uniforms, for, like six different countries. Um, wow. In like the late nineties, early two thousands. Uh, she passed away a few years ago uh, at 73, but I mean, these, these costumes are just stunning, 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 gorgeous beautifully dyed um rich opulent uh exquisite in some cases like the outfit that um you know the the nurse slash love interest wears where it looks like she has a flower bud on her head and she has like this sort of screen that opens over her eyes hands yeah and i mean just the amount of work it goes into these and i mean and some of them got torn apart because tarsem thought the color was needed more color in a certain scene the scene with um the whirling dervishes in the palace as they're about to get married uh originally you know tarsem looked at the the white skirts against like the white backgrounds and the whitish floors and was like oh is that going to be too much let's turn these let's turn these the other way and he made them turn all the skirts uh wrong side out to have the blue on the top Hmm. and the white on the bottom but because of the various weights of the fabric the skirts didn't spin out properly when the dancers would spin um so they had to put them all back (laughs) the other way in like a day and a half they had to flip them all back over so that's you know props to all the costume department for being able to do that on the fly and probably with no sleep um, (laughs) for a long time. But I mean, these, honestly, these, these really made me pay a lot more attention to costume design in movies. And I, I make clothes sometimes just like regular wearing around clothes. And I know how much work goes into something as simple as a shirt None of that fancy <laughs> camera clothes. She just makes walking around clothes. <laughs> I do. I just make walking around clothes. Uh, and I mean, that, 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 there's so much work. There's so much work. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, no. I really appreciate that when you've made your own, you know, and I mean, the even the, the character that you want to take out has this gorgeous yellow coat with these flames <laughs> up the back that are made from, you know, dyed pieces of silk. Look, so it's just I, I didn't, awesome. I didn't say Luigi wasn't styling, all right? Luigi looked great. <laughs> don't, don't get me wrong there. No, the, the, uh, real quick, you mentioned the, uh, this, the wedding scene, um, which had my favorite transition in the whole movie, which is when they realized, like, he realized, like, Oh, the priest is on to us, or whatever. And it cuts to them oh, bound yeah. and chained in the desert. And 
uh, it is like there is the shape of his face uh, in the set. And it is just it, like they, the way they transition that is, is beautiful and I can't fully explain it. Um, so I guess go watch the movie. Um, but <laughs> the butterfly the, reef transition. Yes. Oh, the, the costumes though, to go back to that are, are I, I wish I could have anyone. I wish I could wear what Darwin wears every day. Like, <laughs> uh, it, it looks so good. Oh, it, now see, I wish I could wear what the masked bandit wears every day. I want that coat with the, the gold, but you know, like the flowy I'm, pants, I'm, the very, I'm kind very of, flowy pants. I'm kind of past my uh, vest days, but you know, I'd, I'd wear that vest. <laughs> hey, you got arms like that. You wear that vest. It's true. Yeah. If you, <laughs> I, I guess I wouldn't be past my vest days if I wasn't, uh, if I, if I, you know, had arms that looked like that. You're right. So another, another costume I also love in the film is uh, Alexandria keeps seeing the guys in their, like big, almost like ironclad oh, yeah. uh, outfits to go in the and take x-rays. The x-rays technicians, yes. Oh. And and they kind of look medieval. Like they have this big like iron type helmet and they have this long kind of like leathery type gown that is probably like the olden equivalent of the thing they put on you in the dental chair nowadays. And uh, they look great as the henchmen for um, Odious's army. Well, and they make those disturbing the the noises they make, <laughs> right? Yeah, they use like dog and hyena noises. Yeah, it's freaky to represent them. Yeah, and I mean, a lot of those guys were uh, Indian Army. Um, oh, nice! The That's cool. And they're in these heavy leather outfits, like in piles of bodies sometimes. And those are those are all actually dudes, like lying in a big heap as the slain henchmen in like 110 degree heat in some cases yeah so you know kudos to those guys yeah they they look <laughs> like deal with that yeah they look like the mountain from game of thrones just uh kind of on a Scale small down. scale <laughs> yeah kind of condensed yeah <laughs> but they no i i would not want to be wearing those outfits either they looked very uh uh, heat retention-y. I don't think that's a word, but that's how I would describe it. But very yeah. intimidating, though. Oh, yes. They certainly are. All right, a couple other discussion topics we have. I wanted to talk a little bit about just the whole like famous person presents his movie to you thing. We, we've seen this with Tarantino before, where he tacks his movie onto the front of something he has nothing to do with. Um, to my understanding, largely as just a show of goodwill. You know, hey, people might not know who you are, but they know who I am. So I'm going to go ahead and say I'm presenting this to this audience. Hopefully that'll hopefully increase your box office draw and bolster the popularity. Um, this movie has an opening uh, title card before anything, before director or title of the movie, saying it would, it's brought to you by what David Fincher and Spike, Spike Jones. Jones. Spike Jones, right? Of course. Um, wh- wh- what do we think of that? I just I always find that kind of kind of fascinating. I mean, those two guys had a lot of clout in the mid two thousands. So um, that's, I think it's mostly a, a distribution aid, Yeah, you know, to be like, they let me help you get this distributed. You can tack our names on it. People know our names. People don't always know, you know, Tarsem Singh, um, mm-hmm. which apparently he's, he says he, they shorten it just Tarsem for the title cards of this movie because in the opening titles, he didn't want it to take up too much space. 
relative to the shot of the bridge he was doing. So he was just like, just let's just make a tarzan. Put it over <laughs> sure. here. You know, don't take away from the rest of the visuals. Um, but I mean, his was not a, a hugely recognizable name. You know, he had done like commercials and music videos and uh, The Cell. And those were like his biggest things that he had done that people would recognize, especially in the States. So, but people knew the names Spike Jones and David Fincher. And so yeah. that might make them go, oh, oh, they had something to do with this. Okay, maybe I'll go see this. Yeah, I think that's that's exactly why they did it. I mean, for me, when those names came up, um, I think I even said this in our Slack that we have. I was like, well, that's one way to set expectations, you know, is to throw those two <laughs> names out there. Uh, and given my my mixed feelings on a number of Spike Jones's work, it was like, oh, okay, Spike Jones is, b- is back in this one, huh? All right, let's see. <laughs> you know, David Fincher. Right. Hey, I- Definitely people. <laughs> Two, two items there. First of all, I, I understand that Spike Jones is a is a uh, acclaimed director, and I, and I've seen a lot of his work, but I still just can't separate him from like Weezer videos of the '90s. Like he made the sweater song video. Like <laughs> well, that's what I associate him most with. Right, um, he's done so much more like directing, uh, or okay, I guess not directing, but being part of the Jackass movies. Yeah, he like he, co- <laughs> he like co-founded that whole entire mess. Uh, he's a big part of that. Uh, but in any case, made a lot of money, man, (laughs) a lot of money. Yeah. But in any case, he, he had a comment, uh, to the LA times at the time where he said that this film, one of the reasons he wanted to present it, uh, would is it's a film that what would have happened if Tarkovsky had made the wizard of Oz. That's how he saw this movie. I can kind of see that. Yeah. Although it would have been an hour longer. Right. (laughs) Yes. Because Tarkovsky did not know how to make a short movie. No, he did not. No, he did not. <laughs> yeah. So that I thought that was kind of an interesting parallel. Uh, but I, I just thought that was neat. I don't think that this is anything that takes away from the greatness of, of someone like Tarsem making this movie. But um, it's pretty cool they threw the names out. To hopefully, even though it was a box office failure. Like, I feel like we haven't mentioned that. This thing bombed hard. That's so sad. I I'm really... I mean, I guess I'm not surprised because it's, it's not, it's not a traditional Hollywood movie entirely. You know, it departs from that here and there. And that departure is enough to put some people off. Like if he hadn't, if he'd made the, the, if he had done what you said at the end, where he like walks back the story at the end, where these, you know, all the heroes are actually alive and, it has this entirely happy um, end to both the fantasy story and the real story. I think it it probably would have done better because it would have met audience expectations more. But, I, I mean, this movie is like dark in places yeah. that yeah, people sad. would not go I along with. I don't remember there being much advertising for it because like this was prime. You know, I I was in college uh, when this movie came out. So, like, you know, I was that was my prime, like, go see weird indie movies that no (laughs) one's hearing of. Uh, Find out all like the the stuff that's playing out down at the Camel View. And I don't this movie never came up in that time for me. Like, I didn't hear about it until years later. Yeah, it's it's a shame when a movie like this only makes back a a tenth of its budget. But I think there's also something to be said that. 
it got made. And I think that that is the most astonishing thing, uh, considering that the length said he had to go through to get it funded by himself. Uh, so, and I, I also do wish that movies like this would last a little bit longer in availability. Like it is kind of ridiculous that it was impossible for us to get this movie. Like I, if you're listening to this well, and really interested in it, you kind of have to buy it. Yeah. I was going to say, not if you buy it. I mean, then you can get it if you, I mean, David, no, we, we got it, but in a completely legitimate legal manner, I'm certain, but you know, I, 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 I'm interested now in purchasing this film, but also it's hard for me to be like, I'm going to go drop money on a movie. I've never seen to own it. I mean, I guess right. after that, I can just wing it at cars that cut me off in traffic. <laughs> if I hated I mean, it. I I did it for Guardians. We enjoyed that. <laughs> In a way. It's true. <laughs> and David, you did it for Inside Lou and Davis. The, yes. Okay, look, we don't need to dig into my personal <laughs> film purchasing habits. I also bought that way before we ever decided we were going to watch that movie. That's so. true. You guys just don't trust my word for it. That's, That's not true. Nice. It's I only had a week to get my hands on it, and we're in the middle of a pandemic. <laughs> Hey, I went and got one of your picks at a red box where I had to buy it, not even rent it from the red box for $4. I think I still have the the disc somewhere. Wait, was that? Do you want me to send you $4? That was Captive State. No, I enjoyed Captive State. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so if you do want to find this movie, it's it's there, but uh, (laughs) otherwise you can buy it. Um, There are ways. There are ways. Uh, two other, but like I dis- said, you know, this is the disc you bring when you want to go TV shopping. You know, the disc you bring no to Target kidding. or Best Buy or whatever to put on the to put on their player and show on all the screens at once. Be way more locked. interesting if they played that instead of Planet Earth. When people are walking <laughs> through and they catch random tidbits of this movie. So, a couple other brief discussion topics. Uh, it has a classical score, which I thought was kind of cool. I did not expect that. It has a ton of Beethoven. Not a ton, just uh, just over the end and the opening and ending titles has. The I thought it had it in the middle the too. Does it not? No, that's all. That's that's all. Um, oh, sugar, Krishna. No, <sighs> sugar. I want to make sure I get this right. I don't want to screw this up here. Uh, original music by Krishna Levy. Um. Does oh, okay, right on. It, so, especially all the choral stuff is all his. Um, things that he comes up with. I don't know if you even noticed, but there there are parts where um, there's like a chorus in the background that'll echo the dialogue that's going on in the scene in a lot of the fantasy sequences, huh. uh, particularly in the the Red Palace when um, uh, the Mass Bandit and Evelyn are are walking and talking, and she's wearing this purple dress that looks like it's covered in flowers and butterflies and um you know he did the music for that and and the chorus is echoing everything that they're saying in the background and it's just so neatly right. woven in that you don't always notice it it oh it's a beautiful soundtrack and and you're right it actually is it's it's symphony number no. seven that they used a huge chunk of because bear in mind it's a it's a long movement um they used a ton of that throughout the movie, I guess, the beginning and end then. That's great. I, I really, really enjoyed the music of this film. Um, I did also want to call out the the death scene of Odious 
just made me laugh out loud. <laughs> it's so that. great. At the end of this incredible fight to get to him where all of our heroes die in grisly and intense cinematic ways. Uh, he jumps into a pool with Odious, he being the masked bandit, uh, also Lee Pace, jumps into a pool with him, punches him once, knocks him out, leaves, and then he just slowly floats into a sword sitting by the side of the pool, which is so sharp that can just easily impale him like butter just on the side of the pool. And there's just something even, so anticlimactic about this death. I just gotta he, love it. Like float into it. He like stood up and as he was standing up, he like backed into it. I just love he looks down at it with this kind of like, oh great. Look. It's gravy. <laughs> yeah, it's it's just a very funny death scene to me for a a bad guy that they've been pining over killing the, for the entire movie. Well, I mean, it's intentionally funny, too. I mean, that's something that Tarsem Singh does have a sense of humor, and he, he put that in there deliberately, you know, especially mm-hmm. the line that he gets at the end where he says, I'm just not feeling very well. <laughs> and then lastly, I, I did want to mention the very end of the movie, we do find out that Roy Walker was able to uh, regain his, his, his feeling in his feet. He was able to go back to his career as a stuntman. And Alexandria has this thought in her head of, oh my gosh, every single movie I see, he's the stuntman, right? So we think we see all these clips from famous silent movies, including things like um, uh, Buster Keaton and Buster Keaton, exactly. And we see all yeah. this, and, and it's stuff he's they didn't even attempt to like edit Lee Pace in, and thank God they didn't. Um, yeah, there's only there's only like one where they like shot him into it, and the rest are just random clips from famous silent films, but. I just wanted to talk about the pure insanity of early stunt work that I realized while watching that <laughs> montage and how anxiety inducing it is to watch that closing reel because there is there is shit happening and those there's no way that that would happen today in any capacity. Oh no. There, one of the scenes I believe it was Buster Keaton where it was uh where it's the the front of the house falling and he stands in the window uh and it you know it falls like around him basically people were trying to talk him out of that. People were like, this is a terrible idea. You're going to die. He's like, yeah, let's go for it. And it's, it's super iconic, but yeah, there's no like yeah. na- now you can do like the math and figure it out and really map it out and CGI it and CGI it and later. But uh, back then it was like, well, I might die. So I'm going to jump off this building. Yeah. yeah. Now with this movie, I mean, they barely let Lee pace on a horse. He yeah. just has like that one scene where he's riding the horse and he looks at the camera and he's like, <laughs> Alexandria, do you read English? You know? and yeah. And that was like the one time that he got to ride and he was so excited about it. And like the there's one scene where somebody's running across the top of the bridge trestle. And that's Tarsem Singh because literally nobody else was insurable to do it. So yeah. he did it himself. <laughs> And insurance for these things yeah, can get really crazy, like the stuff that they won't allow you to do. I remember for yeah. Mythbusters, they were trying to do something where somebody had to jump out of a, a truck that was going five miles per hour, and they were like, nope, you can't. That's that's <laughs> Insurance will not allow that to happen. So the stuff that they were doing back then, which like sometimes, you know, they were shooting some stuff with a certain level of trickery, you know, doing some perspective stuff, but there was only so much you could really do in camera. So there were times where they were like jumping off of buildings. 
Oh yeah, yeah. back back then in the nineteen teens, people died all the time doing stunts for movie or were horribly injured. And yeah. so much yeah. of they killed horses all over the place for early right? westerns. Horses, <laughs> people falling off horses, horses falling off things, like horses tripping on things, yeah. people falling off horses while they trip. There's like yeah. there's the shots from you Driving know Buster animals Keaton. off a cliff, yeah. right? Oh, or like yeah. the, the Buster Keaton shot, which is you know also I believe tied in with with um, Charlie Chaplin, is like the Steamboat Bill one where it the house falls and perfectly lands where the person doesn't get hit. He falls through one of the empty windows, um, or even just the shots that we see. Where apparently just the 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 gig or I guess the gag in the 1910s was almost get hit by a train, uh, yeah. and there's like ten of those in that final reel where just like cars and people and horses barely evade moving trains, and yeah. I have a feeling that there was not a lot of safety precaution now, when they were avoiding that, said trains. A lot of that was sped up in camera. Right, but you still had to have a moving train. Yeah, <laughs> right. uh, no matter how slow that's moving, if you got caught under there, goodbye. Yep, yep. Two miles an hour, that train's still gonna take off whatever limbs lying across the track. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I just wanted to call that out. The end of this movie yeah, reminded me of how utterly insane the movie industry was with with stunt people for the beginning of its years. Yep. Yeah, it was pretty outrageous. It was pretty outrageous. But people just wanted to see what they could do back right. then, you know, to find out what was possible. Yeah. Yeah, I, I just remember talking about when I brought Roma to the podcast and all of us were thinking, oh my gosh, they never would have let all of them in the ocean like that at the end of the movie. And then watching the reel that happens at the end of this movie, two very different Hollywoods. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, we learned from people doing the stuff like that back then. What could go wrong? And maybe we shouldn't uh, sometimes let that happen. That's right. But hey, you know, if you lose a leg, then you could be then you can be a pirate in all the movies. You can have you know you can be the guy where he gets. I've had my leg run over and stabbed and shot and you know all kinds of things. You know, the guy they bring in to try to talk Roy into thinking it's not so horrible what's happened to him that his that a career is still possible even with his his physical damage that has been done right so but well, i mean it's nice that they they build that story kind of into the background it's like mm-hmm. you get bits just little bits and dips and dabs here and there of that exposition in the background is like stuff that Alexandria overhears or is close to and doesn't understand or just like these little snippets of dialogue that you can put together in your head that yeah. immediately are like this, you know, this guy is despondent and doesn't think he'll have a career and he needs to be talked into reason. Mm-hmm. You know? Talked out of suicide. Yeah. Yeah. Well, guys, uh, next week we will get to watch a 73-year-old do all of his own stunts in Rambo Last Blood. I did just Google it, and he does indeed do them. So bear that in mind watching it for uh, Netflix Roulette next week, which is on Amazon Prime. Uh, Any final thoughts on The Fall? Uh, Nicole, I I thoroughly enjoy this. I'd never heard of it before, and now I'd love to own the Blu-ray. So I have it legitimately because it was great. 
Oh, excellent. I'm so glad to hear that. So, I mean, and, you know, if everything that we've said so far doesn't prod you into, you know, obtaining this movie somehow, I will I will just add Lee Pace in Guyliner. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. Lots of Guyliner <laughs> on the Pace. So, yeah. I mean, that was popular in silent films anyway of the era True. because it made your eyes right. read better on camera. But, you know, still. <laughs> You uh, know David, me any, any closing thoughts? Uh, I'm going to close it up with uh, with Roger Ebert's quote about this movie. Um, I don't think I would rate it quite as high as he does. He gave it a, a four out of four. Um, I'd probably give this a, a three out of four personally, but uh, you might want to see it for no other reason than because it exists. There will never be another like it. Um, <laughs> I don't know how much that last part is true, but it is unique in just the the how unique it is to the director and to the love put into it. And I think that it is definitely worth seeing. I do love how every time we talk about Roger Ebert on this podcast, it's always, he either loved a movie that everyone hated or hated a movie that everyone loved, or just had a really out there opinion. (laughs) Not to say this is any of those, but uh, man, that man had a prolific and fascinating history of loving movies. Uh, One more time. um, We are going to be watching Rambo Last Blood next week. One quick question for the panel. I had never before seen a film uh, from Tarsem, and I really enjoyed this. To my understanding, there is a movie that exists that combines many of my favorite things. Henry Cavill, Greek mythology, (laughs) pretty colors. Is Immortals as bad as I'm reading that it might be? Should I watch it anyway? I have seen it. I own it. It is very pretty. Uh, it is not as good as this okay (laughs) um but i found i found it entertaining and it's jack it's got john hurt in it oh i'm sold perfect i'm sold all right i'll have to check that out uh because i did watch a video today of henry cavill seductively building a computer which is out there into the world now should you be interested and reminded me of how great he is can't say the word seductive. Anything Henry Cavill does Everything. is seductive. Oh, it's, it's set. It's set to Barry White music, and it's on his oh. Instagram. It's not <laughs> like someone right. else made this. He is like is like in like a, a crop T shirt making a gaming computer to Barry White music. Well, I've got uh, you know what's also music. hilarious is Henry Cavill reading thirst tweets about yes. himself. <laughs> what a man we need to get him on the, get a movie of his on the show uh, oh I was I thought you were about to say we need to get him on the podcast I'm like sure yeah, that'd be great too could. <laughs> good that would be, yeah I'm in I'm all for it I can tell him I liked Man of Steel so oh, I love Man of Steel I don't know what other people tell you and the Witcher is great alrighty uh, that'll do it myself David and Nicole where can we find everybody online David where will you be uh, on Twitter under Davluz, it's D-A-V-L-U-Z. You'll find all my stuff there. Very good. And you, Nicole? I am on Letterboxd uh, under Nicole underscore Davis. Very good. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can find the show at MGRpodcast.com. We'd love for you to head on over there. You can go ahead and subscribe to the show if you're not subscribed for whatever reason and find all of our social links there to follow along, particularly doing during You Did This To Us weeks where you'll have the opportunity to vote for films that we're watching. So be sure to follow along on those channels to have an opportunity to ha- take place there. Uh, but that'll do it for myself, David and Nicole. We'll see you next week 
for Netflix Roulette with Rambo First Blood. Last Blood. Last Blood. The worst one. (laughs) Last Blood. See you then. 